What do you need to prove that Jesus rose from the dead? This is a historical claim, a claim that the man known as Jesus of Nazareth, who had been crucified by Roman soldiers, whose dead body had been buried in a tomb outside Jerusalem by a man named Joseph of Arimathea, all on a particular Friday evening of Passover weekend. That man's spirit returned to his battered and bruised body, and his body was radically transformed, and he was alive again in the fullest sense of that word, seen by many people beginning on Sunday morning and then over the course of several weeks, walking around, traveling from place to place outside of the tomb where he had been buried. How could you prove such a thing actually happened? The Apostle Paul insisted that this event was the event, the fact that all of Christianity stands upon. In 1 Corinthians 15, 17, he writes to Christians, And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. A couple of verses later, he indicates that if you're wrong about this event, if Jesus has not, in fact, been raised from the dead, we are of all people most to be pitied. So we'd better be sure about this. So how can we prove it? Do we need to prove it? We are dependent on eyewitness testimony, which, as Pastor Doug O'Donnell observes, is still the most valid way in our legal system of determining the whole truth, or at least enough of the truth to render a verdict. But does eyewitness testimony provide the kind of proof that skeptics are expecting? It could, but it doesn't have to. Christians, never let yourself get backed into a corner... Don't break out in sweats when someone challenges the historical fact of the resurrection and don't carry the burden of proving it to the skeptics. Christian philosopher William Lane Craig has some helpful reflections on this. Let me quote him at length. There are many real events in history for which the historical evidence is slim or non-existent. In fact, when you think about it, most events in history are of this character, but they did actually happen. We just have no way of proving that they happened. Thus, it is entirely conceivable that the resurrection of Jesus was a real event of history, but there are there is no way of proving this historically. I think, William Lane Craig, I think that in fact the historical evidence for Jesus' resurrection is good, remarkably good. But that evidence is not the basis of the Christian faith. If the evidence for the resurrection is inadequate, that we cannot prove the resurrection to be an event of history... But God's Spirit still furnishes the unmistakable conviction that the resurrection occurred and that Jesus lives today. Therefore, whatever the state of the evidence, we can be sure that the resurrection is an event of history. Ultimately, then, we must come to grips not with historical evidence, important as this may be, but with the living Lord Himself. We all look at historical evidence through a certain lens, and each of our lenses has been shaped by a whole host of factors. For the Christian, one of the factors that has shaped our lenses is that we have met the risen Lord personally. Haven't we? Thus, most Christians, especially when they first believed the gospel message, couldn't provide any historical evidence to defend the historicity of the resurrection. And they don't need to. You don't need to. Don't let your faith be shaken when skeptics or non-believers claim the resurrection was just a myth or couldn't have happened. As a Christian, you know it did. You know Jesus rose from the dead because you've met Him and He lives in you today. Yes, that's subjective. And there is certainly a place for reflecting on the objective evidence that supports such a belief. As Pastor Doug O'Donnell reminds us, faith precedes understanding. Faith doesn't precede all understanding. Christians don't leap over science and history to jump into the arms of Jesus. But once in the arms of Jesus through faith, the facts begin to open up like flower buds on an early April day. While this is true, that objective historical evidence stands quite well on its own if an unbeliever would ever fairly consider it. 
One such unbeliever did fairly consider the evidence. A Jewish man named Pinchas Lapide published a book in 1984 where he argued that the Jewish man, Jesus of Nazareth, did indeed rise from the dead. He believed the historical evidence points to no other conclusion. Nevertheless, sadly, he refused to believe that Jesus came as the Jewish Messiah. Instead, in his desire to improve Jewish-Gentile relationships in the world, he suggested that Jesus came as the Messiah for Gentiles. And fascinatingly, he believed that Jesus will return at the end of history as the Jewish Messiah then. In all of this, I simply bring to our attention yet another tension of the Christian faith. To transition into the main part of our message this morning, let me quote the words of a theologian from a generation before me, George Eldon Ladd. In 1975, he wrote a little book entitled simply, I Believe in the Resurrection of Jesus. He writes, In the end, I accept the biblical witness to the resurrection not because of logical proof or historical reasoning, but because of an inner quality of the gospel, namely its truthfulness. It so overpowers me that I am rendered willing to stake the rest of my life on that message and live in accordance with it. My faith is not faith in history, but faith in the God who acts in history. It is faith in God who has revealed himself to me in the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth and in his resurrection, who continues to speak to me through the prophetic word of the Bible. As we conclude Matthew's gospel this morning, we are confronted with eyewitness testimony, not of the resurrection itself, but of its aftermath. As commentator Dale Bruner observes, this is not a description of the resurrection itself. No such description is given in the New Testament. They had no eyewitness accounts of their most important and contestable event, the resurrection itself. No eye had seen it. So no pen described it. How then does one tell the resurrection story? The only way one can, by telling of its effects, by describing what happened afterward, and especially by telling of the risen Lord's appearances. Words for seeing are scattered throughout this final chapter. And as throughout the gospel, we readers are confronted with the challenge Are we going to believe the eyewitness testimony about Jesus or not? First, in verses 1 to 7, we get to see the empty tomb. Look at Matthew 28, verses 1 to 7. Now, after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake. For an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. Each of the four Gospels note the timing at this point a bit differently. But Matthew's way of putting it is entirely different from the other other three. Matthew and Mark both stress the conclusion of the Sabbath. The Jewish Sabbath would have concluded at sundown Saturday evening around 6 p.m. But all four gospel writers make it clear that the women headed out to visit the tomb early in the morning on Sunday. Thus, Jesus exited his tomb in the early hours of Sunday morning. Thus, Jesus uh, is not here. He has risen when they get there already. None of the gospel writers come out and say this. In fact, none of the gospel writers actually describe Jesus exiting his tomb, neither how it happened nor when precisely. But given the emphasis on the conclusion of the Sabbath in Matthew and Mark, at least, and given Jesus' repeated announcements that he would rise on the third day, I think it's appropriate to conclude that Jesus rose from the dead after midnight on what we call Sunday. The phrase translated the first day of the week is the same in all four Gospels, and it could literally be translated as day one 
with respect to the Sabbath. Many students of Scripture have reflected on the significance of Jesus' resurrection happening on the first day of the week rather than on the Sabbath itself. There could have been wonderful theological significance to Jesus rising on the Sabbath. And our Sabbatarian friends would press that very point. However, the importance of the first day of the week is highlighted in the New Testament and early church history. I like the summary of Pastor Doug O'Donnell on this point, so I'll share that with you. How interesting that God didn't select the Sabbath, Israel's holy day, as the resurrection day. Instead, he chose the next day to be the new holy day. He chose Sunday to be the day we worship his son, the Lord's day. Perhaps he chose a new day because a new era was breaking into world history. A permanent cavity was torn in the cosmos to create an eternal eighth day of rest and rejoicing for all who rest and rejoice in Christ. Or said differently, Jesus' resurrection kickstarts the new creation. From, uh, from the other Gospels, we know the Marys were accompanied by other women, and they were coming to bring more spices and perfumes to anoint Jesus' body. These women saw him die, and they saw him buried, and they had no expectation of him coming out of the tomb again. So they came to show their devotion to him one last time. While they're on the way, a great earthquake shakes the ground and an angel of the Lord opened Jesus' tomb. The women probably didn't see the angel move the great stone. Mark's account indicates that the first thing they saw was the open tomb. And according to John's gospel, the Magdalene ran off at the site to tell Peter and John that Jesus' body had been moved. The other women stick around and receive the angel's message. By the time Peter and John have their famous foot race to the tomb, both the other women and the angels are gone. In verse 4, Matthew inserts a comment about what happened to the guards. They fainted from fear. The terrifying appearance of the angel, which Matthew describes briefly for us in verse 3, caused a manquake among the soldiers, and they became like dead men. Irony abounds. These guys are supposed to be guarding a dead man sealed up inside the tomb. Now they're lying on the ground appearing to be dead, while the dead man they were guarding has long before vacated the premises. As it turns out, however, what the Jewish leaders were worried about didn't happen. Jesus' disciples didn't steal his body, so good job, Roman soldiers. While they're unconscious on the ground, the women approach and the angel addresses them, telling them not to be afraid. Don't be like these Roman soldiers. You have nothing to fear from us. There were two angels, according to the other gospel accounts. Matthew only mentions the one. This angel knows what the women are after. Look at his words again in verse 5. Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. More literally, he gives Jesus a title. I know that you seek Jesus, the crucified. Even as he is now the risen one, the angel refers to him as the crucified one. And of course, didn't Paul say that he decided to know nothing among the Corinthians except Jesus Christ and him crucified? But then in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, he went on to expound extensively on the significance of Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is forever the crucified one the slain lamb of John's vision and revelation, and he is forever the risen and glorified king. Then the angel speaks the famous words in verse 6, He is not here, for he has risen, as he said. He has risen reflects a passive verb in Greek, and it would be helpful to remember, he has been raised by God. Those four English words, he has been raised, reflect one Greek word. And yet, as Bruner observes, the whole of gospel truth rests like an inverted pyramid on the truth or falsity of this one word. If this word is not true, but is trumped up or poetic or symbolic, the whole Christian edifice comes crashing down and deserves to, because it is a lie to say a man is alive who is not. Then the angel goes further. He invites the women to come and see. Come investigate the tomb. Verify that the angel's telling the truth. Bruner has a great line again. The Christian does not get a lobotomy when he or she makes the decision to be a disciple. 
Jesus wants his people to be honest, to think about their faith, and to be able to investigate its problems. The angel's command to empirical investigation is wonderfully freeing. And rightly heard, it can protect the church from anti-intellectualism. These women who believed in Jesus, these women who had served and loved Jesus during his life, these women are invited to be the first human eyewitnesses to see the empty tomb. They had seen Jesus' dead body lying on a shelf in that very tomb some 36 hours before. Now they hear an angelic messenger explaining that God the Father has raised his beloved son from the dead. And they see the evidence with their own eyes. The angel has opened the tomb not to let Jesus out, but to let witnesses in. Yes, they'll see Jesus himself in just a bit, but they need first to see the empty tomb. This will help them believe their eyes later when they see the risen king. Seeing the empty tomb will draw them away from concluding that they're just seeing some kind of vision or that Jesus is a figment of their imagination. No, Jesus, who was dead, is now alive again forevermore. But the angel's not done. He commissions these women to hurry off and tell his disciples. These faithful women get to be the first to share the good news. God the Father has raised his beloved son from the dead. I want to say a brief word about the phrase, raised from the dead. Have you thought about what it means? We say it so easily, raised from the dead. The word dead is a plural noun in Greek, and it does not refer to the state of death. Instead, it's the normal word for corpses. Thus, Jesus has been raised, picked up, and taken away from other corpses. He was among the corpses. His lifeless corpse had been buried in a tomb, among other tombs, where lifeless corpses had been laid to rest before. God has taken His corpse, breathed new life into it, radically transformed it, and moved it out of the cemetery. That's what it means to be raised from the dead. Jesus doesn't belong in the cemetery anymore. He's alive. Finally, the angel informs the women that the risen Jesus is headed to Galilee, and both they and the other disciples will meet him there soon. It's interesting that Jesus isn't already there. The angel says he's on the way. He's pictured as traveling. We know from Luke's account that later in the day, he'll be walking along a path where he runs into two of his followers heading toward Emmaus. Thus, Jesus doesn't just teleport from place to place. Maybe he does sometimes, but at least here we are told that he takes time to travel. Now, we can also notice from the other Gospels that Jesus will meet the disciples before he meets them in Galilee. Several times, in fact, Jesus engages with his disciples in Jerusalem and the surrounding area. But Matthew's Gospel focuses on a particular important meeting in Galilee. We'll come to that in just a bit. But first, the women obey the angel's commands, and they unexpectedly meet the risen Lord himself on the way. Look at verses 8 to 10. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. The women are a mixed bag of emotions after their encounter with the angel and their discovery of the empty tomb. Can you imagine? A blend of fear and great joy makes sense to me. I like that Matthew says fear and great joy. The joy overshadows the fear but the fear is still there. Were they afraid of how the disciples might respond? I wouldn't be surprised. Would the disciples believe them? Luke tells us that they didn't. Or are they afraid simply because they're overwhelmed by the experience and they wonder what the future is going to be like now? Everything has changed. Jesus is alive. 
in any case, as they're running, they find running to find the other followers of Jesus, Jesus himself stops him in their tracks. He stops them simply by greeting them. Does it surprise you that the first word the resurrected Son of God says to his faithful women followers is a simple, Hi! John MacArthur refers to it as warm, informal tenderness. Yes, I love that. He doesn't terrify them with his splendor, overwhelm them with his resurrected glory. He greets them as his dear friends and seeks to calm their fears. Their response is immediate and appropriate. They drop to their faces and grab hold of his very real feet in order to worship him as the truly God-man. Pastor Doug O'Donnell has it right when he says, Jesus has resurrected feet, two feet, to which two worshipers cling. You see, Christianity is a touchy-feely religion. It's a creed with ten toes. He then points out that our two highest holidays are as tangible as human skin, a baby in a manger, and a man with feet. Matthew has uniquely pointed to several occasions in his gospel when Jesus was worshipped by his followers. Jesus does not reject their worship. Instead, he tells them to put away their fear, but not their great joy. And he sends them to complete the mission the angel directed them to do. It seems that Jesus chose to appear to these women on the way simply to alleviate their fear. Isn't that marvelous? The angel didn't know or didn't tell the women that Jesus would show up before they even got to the disciples. The angel simply told the women that they'd see Jesus with the disciples in Galilee. Jesus knows what they need and he shows up to help them. Jesus knows what you need too. And he'll be with you to provide the help you need no matter what you're going through. Notice that Jesus refers to the disciples as my brothers. These 11 men were scattered when Jesus was arrested. Among them is Peter who denied that he knew Jesus three times. Right here, right now, while these men still think he's dead in the tomb, Jesus calls them his brothers. It's true. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. The disciples haven't experienced the reconciliation yet, but the risen Jesus is on the way. In the meantime, they'll need to believe the gospel as the women report it to them. Something else happens while the women are traveling. In verses 11 to 15, we read about the Roman soldiers reporting to the Jewish leaders and the foolish lie they concoct. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. The empty tomb produced terror in the guards, worship in the women, and wickedness in the Jewish priests. I suppose this could be a picture of what Paul describes in 2 Corinthians 2 of how the proclamation of the gospel serves as a refreshing fragrance from life to life to those who are being saved, and also a putrid stench from death to death to those who are perishing. The Roman guards are unprejudiced eyewitnesses who end up being the first evangelists. Even before the women can share the news with Jesus' followers, the soldiers share the news with Jesus' enemies. The sign of Jonah has been given... Will the Jewish leaders believe? No, at least not yet. In fact, rather than believing, they attempt to destroy or cover up the evidence. They have no excuse for their unbelief. Their hard, hypocritical hearts are on display here. As one writer says, And just as the chief priests and elders took counsel to kill Jesus in Matthew 27, 1, here they take counsel to kill the news that he's alive again. Interestingly, Matthew says that the chief priests give a considerable amount of silver coins to these soldiers to bribe them into spreading this deception. 
How much would it take to get these men to keep quiet about seeing an earthquake, an angel, and a formerly occupied empty tomb? It would take far more than the 30 silver coins they paid Judas to betray Jesus to convince these Roman soldiers to put their reputations on the line this way. As one writer cleverly puts it, they had bought Judas's betrayal with blood money, and now they planned to buy the guards' cooperation with hush money. Roman soldiers who fall asleep during overnight guard duty were punished most severely, sometimes executed. Their proposed lie is ironic, of course. The soldiers had originally been put on duty to guard against the possibility that Jesus' disciples would come to steal his body from the tomb. Now the soldiers are supposed to tell people that that's exactly what happened. I have referred to this as a foolish lie for several reasons. First of all, it's unbelievable that 11 Jewish men, even with one of them being a former zealot, could get past highly trained Roman soldiers. Second, it was incredibly rare in the ancient world for grave robbers to steal a body. Almost always they were after treasures and heirlooms that would sometimes be buried with a body. And of course, Jesus had nothing of value buried with him. Third, that the soldiers would have been able to sleep through the giant stone being rolled away and a group of men stooping down to pull a corpse out and drag it away is laughable. Fourth, because the penalty for falling asleep on guard duty was so extreme, the fact that these soldiers received no punishment would be highly suspicious. Fifth, the disciples were depressed and defeated and in hiding because of the crucifixion of Jesus. How could they find the emotional fortitude to attempt to fake a resurrection? And then if they did, what would their plan be afterward? Finally, and most obviously, if the soldiers slept through the whole thing, how can they know that it was the disciples who stole the body? The chief priests sweetened the pot by assuring that if Pilate finds out about what happened, they'd satisfy him, probably by bribing him. These Sadducean chief priests are rolling in the dough, if you know what I mean. It's interesting that they didn't try that strategy with getting Jesus crucified in the first place. Perhaps the public nature of it all prevented them from going down that road. In any case, Matthew informs us that the soldiers took the money and began spreading that story. In fact, the story continued to spread for decades so that Matthew's original readers could still be dealing with that as an issue around their churches. Moreover, the early church leader known as Justin Martyr, writing in the mid-100s, indicated that he had heard Jewish people spreading the same story to explain Jesus' empty tomb during his lifetime. A number of other theories have been proposed by Jews and skeptics to explain the empty tomb, but as the Jewish writer Pinchas Lapidae, who I mentioned earlier, came to admit, the best explanation that explains all the evidence is that Jesus really did rise from the dead. The empty tomb is one of those historical facts that cannot be evaded. Matthew presses home the conclusion of his grand gospel in verses 16 to 20, where we read Jesus' famous great commission. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have no way of knowing for sure how much time has passed. Some suggest a few days, others a few weeks. Others connect this closely with Jesus' ascension, as recorded in Luke's account, which would be about 40 days later. When is not so important, but where is very important. There's been an emphasis on Galilee in this chapter. The angel told the women they'd see him in Galilee. And the women were to tell the disciples that they'd see him in Galilee as well. Now, we're in Galilee. But Matthew's gospel showed how Jesus' public ministry started in Galilee. And back in chapter 4, he drew on Old Testament scripture to highlight the significance of that fact. I'd like to glance back there for just a moment. Flip back to Matthew 4, verses 12 to 17. These verses will be on the screen as well. Now, when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, 
so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region in shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Quoting from Isaiah 9, Matthew shows how Jesus' move into Galilee to begin preaching the gospel of the kingdom was how light dawned for Galilee of the Gentiles. At the end of the gospel of Matthew, we get the Great Commission in Galilee, highlighting the mission to go into all the nations. However, as we know from Luke, the disciples will first need to go to Jerusalem, and the mission to all nations will begin there. That is important to recognize. The commission to go into all nations is given in Galilee, but their obedience to that commission will actually begin in Jerusalem. We'll see the importance of that in just a minute. Look closely at verse 17, back in Matthew 28. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Like the women before, the eleven disciples bow down to worship Jesus. But Matthew tells us that some of the eleven doubted. Why does Matthew tell us this? Certainly, this counts in Matthew's favor as far as telling it like it really happened goes. It also shows that the eleven were not in a state of mind, hoping against hope that Jesus really would rise from the dead. Even after it's happened, they still struggle to get their heads around it. As Jerome said long ago about this passage, their doubt should strengthen our faith. There is only one other place in the New Testament where this word for doubt occurs in Matthew 14. As Jesus walked on water toward his disciples in the middle of a terrible storm on the sea, he called out to the disciples saying, Take heart, it is I, do not be afraid. When he said this, they should have taken him at his word. But Peter, representing the disciples, was not convinced it really was Jesus. The word translated doubt vividly depicts what we might call having second thoughts. Peter was of two minds about whether the voice he just heard was really Jesus or not. This was little faith on display, as Jesus makes clear to them once he gets in the boat. Peter had asked Jesus to prove that it was really him by commanding Peter to walk out on the water, and so he did. But as we saw when we looked at that passage, Peter's attempt to obey Jesus with some uncertainty, some hesitation, some second thoughts in his mind that it's really Jesus was doomed to failure. So here, after the resurrection, even after several other appearances of Jesus to them, the disciples worshipped, but some of them still had second thoughts. Luke 24, 41 indicates that some of them disbelieved for joy. Can you relate? Have you, have you ever had something happen that you were so excited about? And you were excited so you're smiling ear to ear. And you crying hysterically at the same time. And you find yourself saying silly things like, Can this really be? Is this really happening? I can't believe it. Matthew tells us that some of the eleven still have little faith as they look at the risen Jesus. Matthew tells us this because every follower of Jesus from then until today struggles with a faith that fluctuates between genuine worship and having second thoughts. Take heart, my friends. Doubt was not unique to Thomas. Here, unlike in Luke and John... Matthew doesn't tell us that Jesus invited them to touch him to prove that he was really there and he really had been raised from the dead. Instead, Matthew focuses on Jesus' words. What Jesus says makes all the difference and they must believe his word. So must we. Verse 18 then begins with the words, And Jesus came and said to them. Don't miss the significance of that little phrase. Jesus came to them, these doubting worshipers. Jesus spoke to them, to these worshiping doubters. 
Jesus is going to give the great commission to men currently having second thoughts about whether Jesus really has been raised from the dead. Jesus still speaks to you, O struggling Christian, doubting Christian. He does not recoil when you struggle with your faith. The promise at the end of the passage is for you too. And behold, I am with you always, even when you're doubting, even when you're, when you have little faith. He doesn't and he won't leave you or forsake you. And what does he say first? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. You're going to want to buckle your seatbelt, folks. You're going to want to keep your ears attentive for the word all in these final verses. Back in Matthew 4, Satan had offered to give Jesus all the kingdoms of the world and their glory if Jesus would bow down and worship Satan. Jesus rejected that offer. It might have been all Satan could offer. In fact, perhaps Satan should have realized the truth of a couple of lines from the famous hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Indeed, far too small. Jesus rejected Satan's offer not only because it was a present far too small, but also because the price Satan demanded in exchange was far too high. Nevertheless, by resisting Satan's temptation and by remaining completely obedient to his heavenly Father's will, he now receives all authority in heaven and on earth. Universal kingship has been granted to Jesus. The Son of Man of Daniel's vision has approached the Ancient of Days and he has received all authority in heaven and on earth. Or as Daniel himself put it in Daniel 7.14, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Now, Jesus always had universal authority because he is the eternal son of God. However, as commentator Michael Wilkins says, during his earthly ministry, he had absolute authority. But his exercise of it was restricted to his incarnate consciousness. In his risen state, he exercises his absolute supremacy throughout all heaven and earth. In other words, during his life on earth, before the crucifixion, Jesus did not act with all of his proper authority. Matthew's gospel has emphasized different aspects of Jesus' authority. He taught with a unique authority. He exercised the authority to extend forgiveness of sins. He exercised the authority to cleanse lepers. He exercised authority in banishing sickness and demons. He exercised authority over the weather. He exercised authority over death. And he exercised the authority of announcing the arrival of his kingship. He even exercised authority by laying down his own life of his own accord. So what exactly has changed? Paul writes in Philippians 2, 9 to 11, Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. During his earthly ministry, every knee did not bow Every tongue did not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But now, the King of the Jews has been crucified and raised from the dead, and He has been exalted to the right hand of God as not merely King of the Jews, but King of kings and Lord of lords. So now, the mission that will culminate in every knee bowing to Him and every tongue acknowledging His Lordship can begin. Thus, Jesus tells his 11 disciples, even the ones who were at that moment doubting that it's time to get going. Based on his universal authority, he is sending them out. Notice here that there is no delegation of authority from Jesus to the disciples. He is not delegating his authority to them. Rather, he is guaranteeing the success of their mission based on his authority. 
He guarantees the success of the Great Commission by His kingly authority alone. The kingdom of heaven has been established on earth. So it's now time for people all over the world to become citizens of that heavenly kingdom. That's what the therefore in verse 19 is there for. It is often observed that the only command, that is the only imperative verb in Greek, in the Greek words of the Great Commission, is the word translated, make disciples. That is true. However, we ought not lighten the load of the little word, go, at the beginning of verse 19. Matthew has repeatedly attached the participial form of the word go to an imperative verb like he does here. And in every other place, the verb go carries the force of a command. Thus, the commission is go and make disciples. Nevertheless, the command to go doesn't give specific instructions to each individual follower of Jesus as to where or how far they must go. So what does it mean to go and make disciples? Simply put, it means to enroll people in Jesus' school. This is why teaching is highlighted in verse 20. Let's adapt Jesus' words from Matthew eleven twenty-eight to 30 and connect them with the Great Commission. Jesus is commissioning his followers to tell people all over the world, go to Jesus and he will give you rest. Take his yoke upon you and learn from him, for he is gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Jesus is the divine teacher, and open enrollment in his school began on this mountain in Galilee. It's not quite right to translate the main part of the Great Commission as disciple all nations. And the King James Version is certainly mistaken with teach all nations. That is to say, the phrase all nations is not the object of the verb. The verb contains its own object. The translation, make disciples of all nations, is to be preferred. Thus, we shouldn't think of the object, that the object of the Great Commission is developing so-called Christian nations. In fact, the concept of a Christian nation is a completely unbiblical concept. It is a category mistake. There never has been, never will be, and cannot, should not be, such a thing as a Christian nation. The closest thing the Bible gives us to such an idea is when Peter refers to the church, the multinational, ethnically diverse, global church, and the individual churches in every nation as a holy nation in 1 Peter 2.9. Thus, the Great Commission is to enroll students from all the nations into Jesus' school. And we should also recognize that this phrase, all the nations, includes Israel. To borrow a phrase from Paul, Israel according to the flesh, that is, ethnic Israel, that is, Jewish people, are to be viewed simply as another nation among all the others on the planet. In this sense, God has not rejected Israel, and the church must make disciples of Israel just as much as they must make disciples of the United States and of China and of Cambodia and of Mexico and all the rest. The risen Jesus here removes the restriction he had earlier imposed on his disciples on preaching the gospel of the kingdom to the lost sheep of the house of Israel only back in Matthew 10. That mission has not been rejected or rescinded or replaced, but it has been absorbed into the larger universal mission to all nations. In fact, we must recognize that this great, great commission pursues the fulfillment of the nation of Israel's mission in the Old Testament to be God's light for the nations. Whereas the nation of Israel with their temple in Jerusalem could be viewed as a come and see people, inviting the nations to get circumcised, submit to the Mosaic law and worship at the temple. Now the church becomes a go and tell people heading out to all the nations all over the planet, since God's presence is no longer localized in a particular spot on the planet. What Jesus leaves unstated in the Great Commission is that people become students in Jesus' school as they believe the gospel of the kingdom. 
Thus, in Luke 24, 47, Jesus indicated that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. And in the book of Acts, we see followers of Jesus telling the news of the Messiah's death and resurrection, summoning people to repent, believe, and be baptized in water. And it's baptism that Jesus mentions next. As he fleshes out for the 11 disciples how they are to pursue obedience to this great commission, he begins with indicating that they are going to be dunking people from all nations into water in the one name that has three names. This important Trinitarian phraseology reveals the threefold nature of a disciple's relationship with God. Disciples of Jesus who get baptized are publicly indicating their claim that the God who is the Father of Jesus is also their Father, that the Son of God died for them, and that the Holy Spirit has come to live in them. Paul will famously explicate the significance of water baptism in Romans 6, where he indicates that getting dumped in water and then drawn out of water illustrates the union of a disciple with Christ. As we go under the water, we are illustrating that we have been united to Jesus in his death and his burial. And we have truly, therefore, died with Christ. And as we're drawn out of the water, we are illustrating that we have been united to Jesus also in his resurrection. God has made us alive together with Christ, as Paul puts it in Ephesians 2.5. He has raised us from the dead, drawn our corpses away from the other corpses we used to live among, and given us a new life, empowering us by His Spirit to walk in newness of life, as Paul puts it in Romans 6.4. None of that happens in the water or because of the water. Instead, a disciple submits to baptism. In other words, once you believe the gospel... All of those things really happened to you the moment you began trusting in Jesus. Thus, you allow another disciple to dunk you in water as a public ceremony, a way of testifying with this powerful, biblically mandated object lesson, showing others what God has done for you through the gospel. You don't become a disciple by being baptized. It is only those who have already become disciples those who have already enrolled in Jesus' school, those who have already believed the gospel, those who have already been saved, those who have already been brought from death to life. It is only disciples who should get baptized in water. One writer describes baptism as the answer of faith to God's grace. If you claim to be a Christian, if you believe God has saved you from your sins, if you are a disciple of Jesus, and you haven't been baptized, what are you waiting for? Let's get it on the calendar. I've got a big tank right behind me that can be pretty easily filled with warm water. At least I think it's warm. If you've got questions about baptism, please come talk with me or Pastor Ken. Or if you're ready to take the plunge, please come talk with us. Baptism is supposed to be one of the first formal acts of discipleship. It's supposed to be one of the first acts of obedience a new disciple pursues. But it's a one-time deal. Verse 20 provides the lifelong pursuit of discipleship. Verse 20 provides the main aspect of the Great Commission. We are to go on teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. You see, the Great Commission doesn't stop at making converts. One commentator laments because many denominations and mission groups misunderstand this and spend all their effort winning new converts rather than anchoring them in the Christian faith in spite of the many studies that show that too few are truly converted in that initial decision. Paul utilizes the phrase, the obedience of faith, at the beginning and end of the book of Romans, which helps us see what the Great Commission entails Paul also describes his goal as presenting everyone mature in Christ in Colossians 1.28. Notice that this major aspect of the Great Commission isn't merely about a transfer of information. We are to be teaching people from all the nations to observe, to keep, to obey all that Jesus has commanded the eleven. 
what one writer has described as transformational learning. When Jesus told the women to go tell the eleven that he would meet them in Galilee for this great commission, he referred to them as his brothers. Earlier in Matthew's gospel, we heard how he defined his brothers. In Matthew 12, 50, his brothers are whoever does the will of my father. And the great commission is nothing less than teaching people from all the nations to do the will of God, which is shaped by the teaching of Jesus in the scriptures. As far as Matthew is concerned, the curriculum could be viewed as primarily the five blocks of teaching that Matthew has structured his gospel around. The goal of discipleship is that each disciple would become like his teacher. Thus, it's important for us to keep in view that we are seeking to make disciples of Jesus and not of ourselves. Notice also that the curriculum focuses on everything, that word all again, that Jesus commanded, that Jesus commands. From John's gospel, we learn that Jesus promised the Holy Spirit would authorize certain men to record the final God-breathed accounts of Jesus' life. And we recognize this work of inspiration in those who wrote the New Testament documents. All that Jesus commands can be found in the whole Bible, as all of it leads to and is about Him. This pushes us to see the Scriptures as totally sufficient for the pursuit of the Great Commission. As a final motivator to pursue obedience to this Great Commission given to doubting worshipers, Jesus promises His permanent presence with His disciples. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. More literally, we could translate, I am with you all the days. The word all appears yet again. The promise of Emmanuel shows up here at the end of Matthew's gospel. Jesus is God with us. And he promises to be with us all day, every day, for all the days, until the very end of the age and beyond. We have our marching orders Pursuing this great commission must remain the church's primary pursuit until Jesus returns. There are no metrics we can use to determine whether we've reached all the nations. As one writer observes, only upon Jesus' return might it be said that the work of the great commission is finished. This will not be completed because of something the church has done to hurry him along, but because Christ has ceased to tarry. In the interim, the church is called to make disciples not to make Jesus come back. The guarantee of Jesus' universal authority combined with the guarantee of Jesus' permanent presence propels us to persistent pursuit of enrolling students in Jesus' great school. We do this by proclaiming the gospel, telling people about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done to give his life as a ransom for many, to rise from the dead, and to therefore offer royal pardons to perpetual rebels in all the rebel kingdoms of the world. It is a wonderful privilege to open the Scriptures with believers. Not just from behind this pulpit, but to sit down and have a conversation about the Word of God. And I hope and I strongly urge you to pursue those kinds of things in every, with every opportunity you can. You want to grow as a disciple of Jesus? You've got to keep learning. Keep learning. You will never stop. You'll never exhaust this book. And you'll never exhaust the God who's given it to us. So take advantage of every opportunity you have. Prioritize in your own life. Learning the scriptures. In every way you possibly can. Whether that means staying in ABF or being sure you're here on Sunday mornings to hear the message, or just reading in your everyday life, or all of the above. Come on Sunday evenings. We talk about the Word of God together in a very casual setting. But I promise you, I promise you, every one of us needs more. And He offers it to us freely. Pray with me. Father, we thank you for the resurrection of our Savior. We thank you 
that his death was not a tragedy. It was not the end. It was not something to lead anyone to despair. It was a life-giving death. And we only know that because he left the tomb. Thank you for your... Thank you for your love that ensures and guarantees your presence with us in the person of your Son, in the presence of the Holy Spirit in each one of your followers. We could not live life without that. And so we ask that you'd fill us up with hope that we could be a part of pursuing this great commission by the way we teach our children your word, by the way we talk about Jesus in our relationships, And by the way, we fellowship together around your word and under your word as this church body. Draw us, attract us, remind us that there are wonderful things to behold in your word. And these things are not just for our heads. They are for our hearts to be changed so that we might grow more and more into the image of our dear Savior. If the goal of discipleship is to be like Jesus, help us to keep taking steps down that path and to follow him wherever he leads. Help us to listen well to what he says. And by your grace, change us. Help us to see the changes that you bring about so that we might be encouraged and motivated to keep going. Help us as we doubt. Help us as we have second thoughts. Help us as we lack confidence and we struggle in our faith. Walk with us in that. You have promised to do it. And so we pray that we would grow in our understanding of who you are and our trust of you in a day-to-day way and that you would fill us up with all that we need as you walk with us through this life. Pull us away from sin, pull us away from distractions, and pull us ever closer to our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. And be seated for just-